Hello fellow time travelers, Tony Whit here. Just to let you know before you start this episode, I will make a major blunder during it. And it was pointed out after the original cut of this episode was released by our good friend Trey Corte, who generally knows when I've done something wrong. Thank you, Trey. He pointed out that there has indeed been an abridged audiobook released for The Monster of Polydon. It was released in March of 2020, just before the COVID-19 outbreak. And in my defense, the source for my information got it wrong, too, because I went to Wikipedia. So there are two lessons to be learned here. Always trust Trey Corte and never trust Wikipedia. Anyway, enjoy. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, I'm Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them or even collect the hardcover editions or maybe the Pinnacle American Editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hi, this is Sylvester McCoy, and I play <laughs> Doctor Who number seven on Doctor Who. Well, yeah, I could play Doctor Who number seven on something else. <laughs> anyway, you're listening to a rambling Doctor Who for the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels with a book. <laughs> Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the monstrous task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. I'm almost certain I've used monstrous before, but there you go. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have a sometimes monstrous three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And finally, we also have our semi-casual fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello, Tony. Thank you. And Dalton, and the public. Hello. And the public. Oh, absolutely, the public. If you like what you're hearing so far, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. 
Since we know you have so many of them, you keep them in all the ancient secret tunnels underneath your castle, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, and James Sumnall. Thank you all. Thanks, guys. Thanks. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We now continue our discussion of John Pertwee's final season with Terrence Dick's novelization of Brian Hale's story, The Monster of Peladon. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Monster of Peladon, adapted by Terrence Dix from the Brian Hale script that aired from 32474 to 42774, published by Target Books in December 1980. As of this recording in July of 2020, this title is currently out of print, 124 pages. Not a lot to say about this one, except that it's not a well-beloved story. In fact, I think it was the discontinuity guy that essentially said it was like watching socially aware paint dry. <laughs> It's not that socially aware. Well, yeah. it, well, if you know the backstory of what was going on at the time it was written, then it certainly seems like it. But I'm not going to even go into that backstory because we're just going to discuss the story as it is. We're not going to talk about the minor strike. We're not going to talk about any of that because we're just going to deal with the story as is. Why, why are we not allowed to talk about well, it? Well, it's not that we're not allowed to talk about it. It's just I didn't feel like doing the research on it. And believe me. Tons of people have talked about the, the minor, and for that matter, they've talked about the fact that there's no possible way this could be about the minor strike that was happening in 1974. Even Terrence Dix went so far as to say there's no political content in the story whatsoever, <laughs> which is that amazing seems going to going a little me. far as well. Yes, just a little bit, because he novelized the damn thing, and you can obviously tell there is political content, but... The story is not well-liked to the point that it still does not have an unabridged audiobook. In fact, there isn't even an abridged audiobook version of it. There's just nothing. Most of the fan-produced viewing guides out there have few things to say about it. The only reason for the sequel, though, appears to be that the first story was popular. The original script would have taken place only a few years after the first one, and it would have featured King Paladon returning. And in that version, Thalira would have been one of his advisors who ends up marrying him rather than his daughter because we wouldn't want that to happen. Sarah and Eckersley were also meant to have a romantic subplot. And while that would have made things more complicated with his character, it's weird that they're still trying at this point to pair her off with secondary characters. It's something luckily that they won't keep doing. The interesting thing, though, is that Brian Hales turned out not to be able to complete a version to the production team's satisfaction because his scripts were too complex. And after the failed second attempt, Hales was paid for his work and Terrence Dix completed the serial himself, which both explains why the book is somewhat better than the TV story and why the TV story essentially mirrors the original story mainly because Dix would have been rushed on the latter one, but he had some time to tighten up the former. In other words, he had a lot more time to work on the book version of this, even though it's being written in 1980, which is the same year that he was writing the novelization of the very first story, An Unearthly Child. So we're talking about mid-range Terrence Dix here. Yeah. 
Hales did try contributing to the show again, but he was never commissioned again, and though he would do more TV and film work, he eventually died in 1978. The only other notable thing about the story is that while it was being shot, Letts and Dix were looking for the next Doctor, since Pertwee had already told them he was not returning. Among the notable actors approached for the role of the Fourth Doctor is one which should be familiar even to non-Who fans, and that's David Warner, who would soon appear in The Exorcist, and who would later be the villain in Tron, as well as appearing in two sequential Star Trek movies. Uh, one of them is Chancellor Gorkon of the Klingons in the Undiscovered Country of Star Trek VI. At the time, he felt doing the show would be a step backward in his career, but apparently by the early 2000s, his attitude must have mellowed a bit about that because he agreed to play an alternate third Doctor in the Big Finish Doctor Who Unbound series where they do various different versions of the Doctor, and he was the third Doctor, strangely enough. We, of course, know who they eventually chose for the next actor, but we'll go into the story behind that actor when we get to his first appearance, which is only about a month off. It's also potentially noteworthy that this is one of the later but not latest Third Doctor stories to be novelized. And as of now, as I said, it's never gotten an audio release, either abridged or unabridged, make of that what you will. It looks like this was low on everybody's lists to get novelized. So there we are. So, which one of you lucky people are, is going to read the back cover for us? <laughs> silence, <Other> silence. <laughs> uh, I, I can read it i don't mind <laughs> okay thank you 50 years after his first visit to peladon the doctor returns to find that queen thalira has inherited a troubled kingdom from her father membership of the galactic federation was expected to bring peace and prosperity to the planet but the spirit of the sacred monster agador is once more spreading terror and death the doctor uncovers a treacherous plot to steal the mineral wealth of peladon and is again confronted by his old enemies, the Ice Warriors. Yes. And, of course, that's the big reveal, isn't it? That, of course, we're going to get the Ice Warriors again, because, one, they were created by Brian Hales in the first place. Two, the costumes were so expensive that they had to amortize them by using them a lot. And three, it's on Peladon. <laughs> Sorry, that's, that's very funny. No, it's, it, that's exactly the rationale given for how many times they appeared in the 60s. It's because the damn costumes were so expensive. Yeah, you notice that they were, well, you probably don't notice this. They were not planned to come back on the television series until 1986. But that was for the season of Colin Baker's that never got made. We will be reading that story, but only because it was an untold story of Doctor Who. And it was done by Target. So we will read it, but it was never actually televised. In fact, they haven't been back on the air until the Matt Smith era. And they've been back on during the Peter Capaldi era. So the Ice Warriors have come back, but this would be their last appearance in the classic series. So, first impressions. Allison, what were your first impressions when you found out we were going back to Peladon? Well, based on the cover art, Alf has gone rabid. <laughs> and it actually seems to emphasize, uh, the illustration seems to emphasize uh, two things about the Ice Warrior. Number one, the fact that this is a guy in green face paint wearing a costume. Like You can clearly see where the makeup and the costume border is. 
Oh, yeah. And he, he seems incredibly bored on the job because I realize now he's supposed to have like sort of a claw hand, looks like a, a Lego figure hand. <laughs> yes. But it looks like he's holding up a, a hot beverage right in front of him, <laughs> like he definitely needs the coffee to get through this story, and he's sort of frowning. So he he's totally bored. Oh, Alf's gone off again. He looks a little bit upset. Nine to five job. He's having to guard Alf, but his coffee cup was so small that it slipped through his claw. He's like, uh God. Yes. Well, he's wearing maybe like a rubber doublet, sort of. <laughs> rubber doublet. Rubber doublet. Anyway, if you're the one. and even Alf doesn't look that excited. No. About coming unhinged, so I, I no one seemed that into it, uh, <laughs> even before we uh, got into the back cover and the copyright. Page. Don't talk to oh, him yeah. until he had his, he's had his caffeine. <laughs> Maybe it's the same guy before and yeah. after. I thought it was Agador and an, an Ice Warrior, but it's just the Agador, you know, rolling out of bed. <laughs> then he calms down, but then he needs coffee to jazz himself back up. So. Well, the, uh, he, it could be hot coffee because they're vulnerability to heat, so it's got to be iced coffee. Yeah, it's it's iced coffee, coffee. yeah. They, I mean, they've got first-rate beverages. Mm-hmm. So there are ice cubes and mocha soaking into the carpet underneath him, and he's like, oh, God. He wanted iced coffee. He looks so unhappy because he's been given hot coffee, and <laughs> it's not what he wants. <laughs> he needs to pick me up, and this is just going to make him slow down. Goddamn Starbucks. <sighs> They've gotten so lax since the start of the quarantine. <laughs> this is his PPE. That's why he's wearing that thing over his head. But he's got it like completely wrong. Like The mouth is exposed, and the eyes are covered. So. Yes. He should be covering his mouth instead, the stupid lizard. Oh, dear. Well, Dalton, what was your first you impression? You asked for first impression, sir. <laughs> well. Oh, God. <clears throat> let, me, let me breathe for a second. Okay. Um, I didn't remember a ton about our previous adventure <laughs> to Peladon. Um, I did remember there being the giant fuzzy monster. So, I don't know. Seeing that it was the monster of Peladon, I did sort of remember that the doctor um, was able to kind of woo him with Venusian lullabies. <laughs> so, I was like, what's what's the big deal? He got past him once before. Yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect further than we're we're going to see a creature that we already know how to uh, respond to, <laughs> and and even with the ice warriors, we already know how to deal with them as well. So yeah, say so doesn't Agador in the previous book respond pretty well to Kuchikuchiku is a good baby. Yes, yes you are. Yeah. Yes, you yeah. are. Yeah. Exactly. We essentially get Kurtwee singing the exact same lullaby to the tune of God Rusty Merry Gentleman. Which is actually quite charming, but we've seen it before. <laughs> so it's like, oh, okay. Well, and Agador is never... Actual Agador is never the foremost villain in this story. They didn't just do the same story again. We just have this projection of Agador that we, the audience, know isn't the actual fuzzy creature. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And there's a lot 
of energy devoted to trying to make you think it's going to be the same as last time, because Thalira's Chancellor Ortron seems to be exactly the same as Hepesh was, trying to Mm -hmm. work against her so that she's not working with the Federation, when actually he's just a big old sexist. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Of course, that's true of all Paladonian society, which is just... Yeah... I mean, it was nice to try to do something a little bit different because we read this initial scene in the throne room where we're told how how tiny the queen is and how she seems almost smushed by the crown and the jewels, which, you know, actually works just fine for symbolism for young ruler. But then we're uh, told here, behind her tower, the massive figure of Blore, the queen's champion, powerful arms folded over his mighty chest. At the queen's right hand, a little behind the throne was Ortron with both chancellor and high priest and my first thought was okay which one is a traitor well will it be both <laughs> okay Ortron's a traitor and it was a little bit different than that but not much different than that yeah and it did seem like it was going to be Ortron because he seemed very much wanting everybody to be executed in fact it reminded me of uh, the Robert Stack character in the Beavis and Butthead movie you know yeah uh cavity searches for everybody <laughs> it's like Executions uh, for everybody. Oh, very Red Queen. <laughs> yeah, just a little strange. Well, let me tackle that head on then. Were you surprised by the reveal and who was behind it all and why? You you mean surprised by it being the Ice Warriors or surprised about and by Eckersley? Eckersley. Um, yeah. Not surprised about Eckersley. I had a bad feeling about him from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. He just seemed like a dirt bag. Um, <laughs> just, just some of his lines about yeah. not really worrying about the the politics of the planet that they were on. His his uh, leanings toward profit over people. Mm-hmm. He just seemed like a horrible, horrible person. Yeah, and and even the the idea that. The Federation sent ice warriors. Like, oh, yeah. like, are the ice warriors part of the Federation? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Remember from the previous story that part of the problem the Doctor had was accepting them as an ally at this point because the ice warriors had joined the Federation. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. It just seems uncharacteristic, but I guess okay. Well, that's kind of the problem, isn't it? Because this story in that regard ends up just being reversed to the previous one. Yeah. That the the big thing going on in the previous story is, there are ice warriors here. They must be behind it. Oh, wait, no, they're the good guys. It's actually the high priest behind it. And this time we're led to think, oh, the high priest must be behind it again. Oh, the ice warriors are here. They'll take care of things. Oh, no, they're actually villains again. But it's not all ice warriors, as it turns out. It's just this offshoot group which is what a strange thrilling reveal right yeah. <laughs> allison were you surprised by eckersley being behind it all and the ice warriors being behind it all no it was only a slight variation on what i expected i thought that eckersley was supposed to be an example of sort of banality of evil where he's not actively evil he just doesn't really care about anything other than efficiency and cashing a check and of bad things to other people well he's just following orders whatever and I did like that his motivations were so uninteresting and generic when he was revealed. Oh. He's asked, you know, what's the reason for your betrayal? Money. actually <laughs> <laughs> simply. And then, you know, and that's just for starters. Later there will be power as well. <laughs> True. So I actually did like how incredibly dull and unimaginative a villain he was. I thought that worked. <laughs> <laughs> but we always have so many of those. Well, actually, that's not true. 
but that is how much of the world's evil is is proffered, not by, you know, really imaginative supervillain type, but people who want uh, money and power. And so I, I thought that that worked. Uh, I did keep uh, imagining, um, I think it's Skull. Yeah. <laughs> um, S-S-K-E-L as an evil Siskel, the, <laughs> the late film critic. <laughs> so just... Gene Siskel with a, a, a sort of a leathery green oh. hide. <laughs> and I guess a cup of unsatisfying coffee. Mm. Oh, God. I wonder who in the cast would have been Ebert then. Probably Alpha Centauri. <laughs> One giant eye and... Oh, God, that's awful. One giant eye and no mouth. Oh, God. Yeah. That's horrifying. <laughs> oh, no. I'm sorry, ghost of Roger Ebert. That's not the way I meant that at all. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Anyone surprised that Alpha Centauri is still around? No. (laughs) Surprise would denote an emotional reaction. (laughs) Like, oh yeah, wasn't there a guy with tentacles last time? Oh, it's the same guy. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we we don't really know a whole lot about his race, do we? No, so. no. We just know that they are extremely long lived, to the point. That he remembers the last story. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the thing is, here's the interesting thing. Well, semi interesting thing. When they brought the Ice Warriors back for Empress of Mars, which is this absolutely bizarre story set in the 19th century. Yeah, the British had an actual space program in the 19th century. Just so you know, it's very steampunk. It's very interesting in that regard. And we find out that the Ice Warriors actually do have females, that the Empresses are, in fact, the females. Ah, you also discover that Alpha Centauri was around back then, and he was one of the ones who first welcomed them into the Federation. Here's the amazing thing. They got the voice actors who played him in these two stories back to do that part at the age of 92. Oh, wow. Are you receiving us? Yeah, she had re- retired from acting long before, and they got her back to do this part. And she sounds, well, for a 92-year-old, she sounds very much like she did back in the uh, 70s. So it's it's a nice little bit of continuity. However, it's also continuity that brings in these two stories, which means we've got to pretend that these two stories happened. And that's the problem. <sighs> yeah. I guess, for me, the, the inclusion of Alpha Centauri just seemed like a way for them to be able to vouch for the doctors coming back you know they need, yeah. they needed somebody there that remembered him or was there for his first interaction uh, on the planets um even if he did appear and disappear under mysterious circumstances but with alpha centauri there they you know they could at least say i i remember him this is this is the doctor so it was yeah. an easy way to play that off yeah, especially in a series where we don't have psychic paper yet. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, that's how the new series gets uh, gets around having him pretend to be somebody or having everybody ask who he is for the first 20 minutes of the story. And right. here we've got a six-parter. You probably could have gotten away with that, but that's probably not a bad thing to do because otherwise Office and Tori, well, he's kind of the Jar Jar Binks this time around. Yeah. he He's the one who ends up calling the Federation forces not knowing that this rebel group of ice warriors is listening in and that they're going to come lickety split and essentially take over, take over the whole planet. That's just not possible. Obviously, Peladon is just a small part of Peladon, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah, just this one castle and lots of miners underneath it. Yeah. Lord. I mean, it does make sense in that instead of presenting as an invading force, they are presenting as allied troops who are going to help restore a certain amount of order. I mean, I guess it does make sense as a strategy that they won't automatically be resisted on site. Yeah, exactly. It's unlike sending a bunch of thugs and unmarked vans to a city and having them just pick up passersby without a word and without oh, any sort of... Oh, we're not kidnappers. We're federal agents. Oh, which agency? Oh, Never you mind. Yeah, exactly. No, we're with the Federation. We're going to take you to their black cells and secret prisons. Well, so there is that. There's a return to a planet that I'm not sure any of us wanted to return to. I'll say, well, you did warn us that we would be back and that some people got very excited about Peladon. Yeah. They also needed Alpha Centauri to prove, I mean, to show... We're obviously ahead of this whole story towards a climax where the queen comes into her own, which I was not excited about because it's the sort of the Catherine Graham feminism of, oh, a lady can be a good hereditary dictator, too. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> what if you just didn't have a regent? Obviously, there had to be a certain amount of both malevolent and benevolent sexism for her to overcome. And you need at least two characters to make it, you know, or a phenomenon instead of just one person. But it was, everything that Alpha Centauri did was very functional to the plot, and I don't mean that in a especially positive or interested way. <laughs> I mean, it's not a bad story to do, but it was it was it was very low bar to clear. Yeah, agreed. Speaking of that Catherine Graham sort of feminism you were talking about, I I want to tackle that because I want to hear the thoughts of both of you on that scene in Chapter 5, because it's controversial, but not for the reasons you would think. But I wanted to get your thoughts initially on it before I tell you one of the reasons why it's controversial. The the part of where uh, Sarah Jane is talking to her about women's lib. Yes. Yeah, so the doctor says he needs, <sighs> she needs to update her on the women's lib. Yeah, why don't you just tell her about women's lib? <laughs> Yeah, his delivery there is very glib, but yeah, that part. What you uh, what you thought of all of that? <laughs> very functional by the numbers, not offensive, not especially inspiring. Of course, you know, here we are, forty years later. Um, maybe it was a little more inspiring at the time, but seemed perfectly fine by the numbers, like the rest of this sort of reheated green bean casserole with a can <laughs> of cream of mushroom soup and a little bit of leftover sausage. <laughs> <laughs> That's a point, yes. <laughs> yeah, it just, I don't know, any any weight that it would have had just kind of gets thrown away by the doctor's uh, just, yeah, lackadaisical, why don't you stay and talk to the queen? 
I, th- I think the the only part that maybe has any weight is the there is nothing only about being female. Yes. That that line is maybe the only thing that seems like okay that that's got a little more meat to it. Um, mm-hmm. but, but even the idea about what is this women's lib? It means women's liberation, Your Majesty. Women have been pushed around on Earth for a very long time, but it's all changing now. Like what? <laughs> <laughs> well like yeah. i said this is the, the adaptation here the novelization is 1980 when's the episode 74 uh, yes a tremendous amount was changing in 1974 so i'm being too hard on it in my current context i guess well you'd have even more reason to be hard on it if you'd seen the original scene uh, because dix has actually improved on the scene as it as it went out for one thing well, for one thing, it's actually kind of reversed. The The doctor doesn't glibly say, hey, well, why don't you just tell her about women's lib? <laughs> and then goes off. He <laughs> he actually says, why don't you stay and talk to the queen? I think you might have some good advice to give her. Sarah, why don't you, uh, why don't you stay and have a few words with the queen? I have an idea you could give her some good advice. He loads that line with a lot of, you know what I'm talking about, please talk to her, as if to say, I'm really counting on you here. As But Dick's, of course, being kind of not anti-women's lib, but just not really on board with it all, seems to make it a lot more glib from the doctor's point of view so that it sounds like a joke here. But on screen, <laughs> that conversation between Sarah and Thalira plays out slightly differently. Sarah doesn't go into nearly as much detail about what woman's lib is. She says that it's basically, we don't let men push us around. That's it. Just one line. And then the line is not, there's no only about being a female. The lyrist says, I'm just a girl. Uh, I'm only a girl. I'm just a girl in the world. Sorry. That (laughs) popped into my head as soon as I said it. She says, I'm only a girl. And Sarah says, there's no only about being a girl. It would be different if I was a man. But I'm only a girl. Ah, just a minute. There's nothing only about being a girl, Your Majesty. And it's like, oh, God, you can tell this was written by a middle-aged man, couldn't you? So, Dalton, I think the fact that you're kind of hearing the weight behind there's no only about being a female is that Dix is expanding on that and trying to make it into the inspiring speech that it was supposed to be rather than how it was scripted, even though I have a feeling he was the one that wrote that line to begin with. So, yeah. I mean, it is something. It's not a lot. Yeah, it's not. And you think by now, rather than... You'd think there'd be a little bit more use of Sarah's position as, quote-unquote, the first feminist companion of the Doctor. Well, she spends way too much time being literally led around by the hand in this story. Oh, God, yeah. I agree. I mean, she does have a bit of fire when they are being mistaken for imposters, and she actually demands an apology, and the Doctor says, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, no, 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 this isn't the time for this. But apart from that, yeah, how do you characterize her being uh, led by the hand for most of the story? I mean, I think there is a scene where she is literally being led by the hand one place or another. And towards the end, one of the villains, she's sort of staring down one of the villains and then, you know, is, I think literally, was it shoved slightly to the side or led away by the hand or something? It's just, 
we don't get the feeling this queen is actually any good at being a queen or has any business being so other than being born to the relevant hereditary heirs. And then Sarah doesn't actually seem to do a whole lot other than striking a pose. <laughs> but the doctor doesn't do all that much. I, and I'm sorry, this is maybe just a headspace I read it in, but it felt like there were zero original elements whatsoever that everything that Sarah and the doctor do in the story they have done before and better in other stories. Yes. And it's just cruel to the reheating. <laughs> yeah. It is essentially that. It's kind of sad, really, because even some of the more clever parts, like Gebek's speech in Chapter 8, where he's telling his people in front of the Ice Warriors to <laughs> fool the Ice Warriors, and they all go along with it. That was a, a bit of cleverness. That was a fun scene. I want you to cooperate with them, just like we cooperated on using that new drill. And I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's so. rather an outsized wink, but it's it's a bit of texture. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And we also get characters like Edis, who we've seen before. We've seen the rebel who is so used to rebellion that he can't get out of that brain space and decides that he's going to keep doing it, even though it's to the detriment of his own people. As a matter of fact, if the Doctor's plan had worked, this probably could have been a four-parter like the original story was. Instead, it's a six-parter. This was six parts? Yes, it was, which shows you just how good the book is in comparison to the story, because it means that Dick's chopped a lot of the fat off to get us down to 124 pages. And there was even still a lot of back and forth that seemed kind of tedious. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good Goodness, <laughs> yes. Which is strange, because... I Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I didn't find it nearly as tedious as I thought it was going to be. Maybe I had such low expectations that I was like, eh, I won't say I enjoyed it necessarily, but it certainly wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, it's not offensively no. bad. It's just more of an absence of yeah, content. A lot of, a lot of the instances of the back and forth between Gebek and Edis and the queen, you know, and the rebels back and forth. It was very expedient. They didn't take so long describing it. Terrence Dix really was just like, okay, they did this, then this happened, then this happened. As opposed to mm -hmm. before where we would get long paragraphs telling us people walking through caves. Like, okay, I don't need to know that they're walking through the caves. <laughs> well, I think part of that difference is if i'm remembering correctly in fact i need to check this and i'm sorry i didn't before but i think the first story was indeed adapted by brian hales wasn't it yeah brian hales was the one who adapted the first story mm -hmm. in fact the weird thing is he adapted that in 75 but then it finally got a printing in hardcover in 80 which is the same year that this was printed so you get the sense that oh well if we're gonna reprint the old one in hardcover we might as well do this one too but you had the original author doing that first paladon story which is why we got those long sequences and all the description and all of that which we i remember at the time we found to be stultifyingly boring mm -hmm. here at least dix is sparing us some of that and the pro well it's not a prologue but the beginning of that first chapter where he tells us this is what happened this is where we are and this is where the story picks up is at least it could have been worse <laughs> we could have gotten a lot more of that uh -huh. and we didn't we get just enough so that we know what's going on and nothing more <laughs> 
Only this and nothing more. <laughs> Only this and nothing more. The problem is that we've already seen this stuff, and we really have. It's kind of a shame. Well, and when I was talking about green bean casserole, I don't mean like fresh green bean casserole, which I actually love. I mean when you're trying to use up leftovers in the fridge. Oh, yeah. And you just mix together everything, which is the second adaptation in a row we've had like this because we had an original story last time. Yeah. It's one before last with Death the mix of the elements we'd seen before. Yes. Where the only thing that sort of stuck in my mind afterwards was the automated city, I think, still had a nice sinisterness to it. Mm -hmm. But everything else was, it wasn't horrible, but there were every single one of them elements that we had seen before. We'd seen mechanized cities before, too, and or at least mechanized buildings and facilities before. It was just a little different scale. So this is similar. They're not bad elements, but they're very, very familiar to us. It's definitely been rewarmed. Yeah. And I actually uh, love that there are so many stories about, you know, miners and labor issues, but <laughs> we've seen it done so much better and more interestingly before. But I actually kind of like, though, that in the past, in the future, on other planets, wherever we are, wherever there is industrial civilization, there will be mineral extraction and people doing it and places are extracting it from. It's always going to be relevant and important. I think that that's an interesting thing, but this was not an interesting exploration of it. Yeah, I think it might have been a lot more interesting at the time that it aired. Well, it almost is, I guess, because Peladon was, if I recall correctly, just much more Rin Fair last time mm -hmm. without Industrial Revolution elements. Yeah. yeah. So that, that can be an interesting story, but this isn't it. Well, it was more a gloss on the UK's entry into what, what would later become the EU. So it's definitely got some political content. No matter what Terrence Dick says, this is definitely about the minor strike that was happening at that time. It is a fascinating story, that minor strike. It is horrifyingly fascinating. It didn't go as well for the actual miners as it did for the Paladonians, but that's kind of what you'd expect. And yet, yeah, it's still just, ugh, it is a bit rewarmed. How about the Doctor and Sarah? How do we feel about where they are right now? I felt Sarah had the best observation of the book. Sarah looked around disgustedly. We're not in your precious citadel of Peladon at all. We're in another rotten, gloomy old tunnel. <laughs> For some reason, tunnels seem, no, seem to feature largely in their adventures, and there's usually something nasty at the other end. And then a few pages later, we have Sarah said, On this planet, I don't trust any of them. She looked at the map. Now we're here, and the doctor is here. So if I take these tunnels... <laughs> That's all I have to offer there. But, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. but it's actually not even her, I realize, now making the meta observation. It's just dicks. So it was it was a very tunnel-intensive story, and you know I'm weary of tunnels. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, so is Sarah, for that matter. She's already seen enough of them, which is kind of ridiculous in its own way. I also found myself having difficulties reading the name of the people to whom Vega Nexus belongs because they're referred to collectively as vegans. Yes. <laughs> Luckily, they were killed off very quickly when we got to the meat of the story. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> oh, sorry. It is terrible. <laughs> it. It could have been interesting. It could have been interesting to revisit a planet and see, okay, it's been 50 years. Let's see how far they've come. They haven't. They're technophobic in much the same way as the Exelons were. 
they spend most of their time in caves, mining, the, which is kind of what the subterranean exons were doing, and uh, they're still being treated as barbarians by the Federation. There could be an interesting story there about a society that's coming into technology not through its own exploration or what they're choosing to import, but because of overwhelming forces from the outside, where they're not really determining the course of their society so much as it's being thrust upon them by alliances that they need. But there's there's, there's a premise, there's not much of an exploration. Yes, and that would be an interesting premise if it were being viewed, say, through the lens of colonialism, because you could see the Federation as the British Empire using a quote-unquote barbaric group of people to create tea or whatever they were using all the their different protectorates for. Yeah, stripping of natural resources in the Congo, where you have a, a country that's incredibly rich in natural resources, but only a few select puppet governmental heads actually reap the wealth mm-hmm. of it. But here we're supposed to like the puppet governmental head. Yeah. And I didn't mean to blaspheme Catherine Graham earlier. Just <laughs> People use the term white feminism in a way that I think is not, doesn't explain very well what's meant by it. I think of Catherine Graham as an example of the person who was born on third base where gender was the only thing that stood between her and inheriting a publishing empire. So I don't mean to say at all she was a bad publisher. No. She's a very important publisher. But yeah, I'm not interested in finishing my own thought here. I think that that really shows you where I left the book. <laughs> I can't even quite bring myself to bring the point home, and I and that way I yeah. emulate Terrence Dix in this book. Going back to the the bit about the the feminist talk that she has, yeah. um, I guess my feeling behind that too. Whenever Sarah says that everything's changing now, I mean we're what forty fifty years on from this book itself, and it still feels like women's liberation is something that is brought up. I mean, our last election, people refused to vote for a female because they were worried that she would start a war. Yeah. Like, we, we are still facing a lot of these issues of women not being trusted, women being impulsive. So I think that is something. Sarah kind of boiling it down to everything's changing. And it's like, no, it's, we got tiny steps, but there are still tons of things all around the world that are being put upon women. I mean, rape culture is is yeah. still, you know, all over the place. Toxic masculinity, all over the place. Mm-hmm. So the idea that everything is changing is just laughable. Yeah. And that whole idea of, oh, if we elect somebody female, she's going to start a war, is just patently ridiculous. If you look at all the female world leaders who have been elected or appointed in the last 50 years who have not started wars. And all the men that have started wars. Yeah, exactly. And it's always been the men who have started, well, you could argue, of course, it's always been the men that started wars because they've always been in power. But if you look at other countries, that seems to carry over as well. And it's just so asinine. I I don't know if anybody's heard of Ferdinand and Isabella, but you can certainly have a tyrannical queen um but that's that's not what this story is about the story of how she is condescended to and lacks assertiveness is not the cure to the situation is her simply asserting herself growing a spine Mm -hmm. and that's where the story is outdated yes 
because it's much more complex than that. It's In fact, it's even questionable whether she needs to grow a spine because the Thalir that's on the page is actually a little more effective than the one we get on screen. It's debatable whether she needs to grow a spine more that the society itself needs to be changed from top to bottom and bottom to top and that's something we don't see happening either. We're not shown enough substance of the character to have the idea that she could become a good leader. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. And so, and so we're not invested in that story. No, certainly not. Which really is a shame. It could have been better. <laughs> it really could have been better. I tend to think that stories set on Paladin are just kind of non-starvers, but that's only because of my own prejudices against... How many will there be? Because you warned us there would be another, but now you seem to be making further threats. The, oh, no, no. There will not be another story set on Paladon at all okay. in the classic series. There is a new adventure written by Gary Russell that's set on Paladon. Chock full of continuity references. I love Gary to pieces. Gary, if you're listening, I love you to pieces. You know I do. But I've told you to your face I never liked that book. And <laughs> I don't. Wow. Because yeah, Did I'm, he get out his leather slapping gloves? No, but he probably wanted to kill me in his head in the elevator where I told him this. Um I didn't say that saying it to his face, what I meant is that I said it to somebody else in the elevator as we were all on the elevator, but I think the distinction would have been lost. <laughs> I'm I'm just not a big fan of Paladin stories. Luckily we don't have to have any more of them. And we're only going to get one more Ice Warrior story that's set during the classic series, but it's one that won't have aired, so it doesn't quite count. We are getting the Ice Warriors one more time, but by a different author. I guess I'm a little bummed out by this book and the last adaptation we read because it feels like they're running out of ideas for this doctor. Mm. And I'm I'm not tired of this doctor, but it feels like the writers are. Yeah. It does, doesn't it? Like they're burning off old stories, burning burning off unproduced scripts. Now, are you are you including Ghosts of End Space in that, or do you mean Death to the no, Daleks? No, no, because that's uh, no. I'm thinking of that as a you know book from fifteen twenty years later, right? No, I mean this adaptation, and then the book we read before last, which was the last adaptation, right? Where they were completely recycled elements. I mean, it's nice that they're being efficient, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, efficiency is usually not what you're looking for in an adventure story. No, and it does tell you something about the uses of the Pertwee Doctor that even those stories later in the 90s will eat... Well, there's the whole debate in the 90s between trad and rad. Trad is in traditional, rad is in radical. That you have old hands like Barry Letts and Terrence Dix who are writing fairly traditional stories, and you also have younger writers doing it too. And then you have people being more radical like Paul Cornell, whom we've mentioned before, and Russell T. Davis, and in fact, who wrote A New Adventure. Well, and I thought the Barry Letts stories were fun. Yeah. But the reason these seem, it seems odd to me that these last two have been so lifeless is we don't have stories on Earth. Oh, we, don't have, we don't have the Doctor stuck on Earth for stories okay. anymore. Mm -hmm. There's not that limitation to overcome. The sky's the limit. They've got the whole universe. They've got the wardrobe budget, I guess, to limit them. Yeah. Um, but it, it feels like they've run out of steam. A little bit. We're so early on in seeing Sarah that she should really be reinvigorating the scriptwriters, it seems like. She should be. 
And I agree with you there. And I think that when we see her in the Baker years, it's going to be kind of a revelation because most people say, yes, Liz Sladen, wonderful actress, she can do no wrong with her material. But even as somebody who knew her as Sarah Jane in the Tom Baker years before I knew her as Sarah Jane in the John Pertwee years, I look at that as a big difference. I look at them as two completely different characters. She really comes alive as a character once she joins Tom Baker, whereas for the Pertwee stories, Mm. yeah, the writers aren't doing what they could with her. This whole gambit of, why don't you tell the queen about women's lib? It seems to be the extent of it. She does react to Alpha Centauri a little more xenophobically than I believe Joe did. But yeah, there's not a lot that they're doing with her that they could do. And it does seem like that they've done as much with the John Pertwee Doctor as they possibly could do, which is a shame, because there's more to do with the character. Now, the actor's already yeah. checked out by now, obviously. Yeah, when when did Pertwee say that he was done being the Doctor? When, when did he decide that he was through? I read this somewhere. Uh, I believe he let them... He was making noises about it as soon as Katie Manning said that she was leaving. And then it was as soon as he found out about the death of Roger Delgado, which I believe they heard about during Death to the Daleks. I might be wrong about that. But, yeah, he's already told them. And, in fact, it's during the filming of this season that you hear reports of Pertwee being difficult. I mean, he could be kind of difficult before. Not Tom Baker levels of difficult, as we'll find out. But at this point, you could tell that his heart's not in it. Even during the filming of Dinosaur Invasion, people accuse him of not being all that invested. Mm. Well, that makes sense if effectively his friends are gone. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, which is why, for me, this book actually reads better than it watches. Which, yeah, I had real difficulties watching the six-parter this time. I almost skipped it entirely. The book was much more enjoyable. And the book isn't, as the two of you seem to have pointed out, the book's not all that enjoyable either because Well it's not miserable no. either. It's not sandpaper, it's just link sausage. <laughs> yeah. Vienna sausages. Sorry. I have only culinary <laughs> metaphors to offer this evening. I'd say Vienna sausages because it's pre pre packed and canned and there's not much of it. It's not very satisfying. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it tastes like it should taste good, but it doesn't. It's unseasoned. <laughs> it's it's just yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's actually a really good way to put it. It's unseasoned, and normally Dix has a little bit more characterization of the guest stars, Mm -hmm. and uh, a little more humor, a little more pathos, and yes, Dalton, you've you've, (laughs) you've nailed it. It's unseasoned. Yeah, and normally I would go into, you know, all the changes that Dix has made. He hasn't made that many changes. The only changes he's made essentially are that he's tightened up the story but it still doesn't feel all that tight on the page which is a shame or if anything too tight it's there's really no love shown for the guest stars and he usually finds something interesting in them to develop Mm -hmm. yeah and you think with eckersley he'd have something to work with but not even there I mean, apart from the fact that he has eckersley calling sarah love all the time which is just condescending in its own way well, I thought it was going to lead somewhere, um, and her showing him up a bit, but yeah. not really. No, 
Not really. I mean, I guess it establishes his villainy. Yeah, exactly. Or prefigures it. Mm-hmm. So I have a question. Is this first time we've seen that the doctor knocks himself out to prevent a migraine? We No, we've seen the Pertwee Doctor go into healing trances before, Planet of the Daleks, and before that, the demons, when he was exposed to extreme cold. But I guess this manifestation of it, maybe I didn't understand it to be the same phenomenon. He just says, you know, it's a bit noisy here. I couldn't stand the row from Eckersley's alarm system any longer. I went into complete sensory withdrawal. I guess before I took it as healing from injury as opposed to sort of a preventative state. Yeah. That, that, that was kind of interesting. It's basically the same thing. He switched himself off before. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a switch like Data. He clicks his side and he's out. <laughs> yeah, the the fourth Doctor will do that a couple of times, too. And it will come up at least... Uh, I don't remember if it comes up for the other Doctors. It gets used against him at one point when he's in the sixth incarnation, but that's essentially it. Huh... Oh, and that's a script that was originally written by Robert Holmes, so maybe it is a carryover. I don't know. I, yeah, <laughs> we're we're grasping at straws, aren't we? It's very hard to find anything particularly good to say about this one. Mm. So anything else we need to say about it? Mm. Nothing particularly good, nothing particularly bad, nothing particularly particular or specific. <laughs> okay. It's uh, there. All right. It did me no harm. It brought me no joy. It brought me no grief. Uh, I'm just, I'm looking through little things that I had highlighted. Just describing the ice warriors rolling around to and fro on their backs like stranded turtles. Just interesting imagery there. Whenever the doctor's talking about his plan, uh, fool the ice warriors and get get in touch with the the real Federation, Sarah, um, saying he's quite the little Napoleon. <laughs> Interesting. Yes, that was fun. Just you know, a line here or there that has some life to it. Let's see. Oh, the that Sarah cries because she thinks that the doctor is dead. Oh yeah, get used to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She should. Yes. Yes. Yes, because it happens twice in the story, doesn't it? She thinks he's dead twice this time around. Yeah, and in previous stories, she should really not be so accepting of the scenario. I know she now. should read ahead in the script a bit. She would know that. Right. <laughs> she should have experienced enough to say, "Wait, is he really? Maybe, maybe I should check." <laughs> yeah, precisely. <laughs> there is a point too where she is the one who's asking about the ice warriors, and we get a little bit about why they look different something like that, that's not on screen. That's actually Dick's doing something that Brian Hales never did for us, which is explain why the, the Ice Warriors look different. But I mean, I, I relate to the Ice Warrior on the cover with his beverage he's kind of disappointed in. <laughs> no one threw it in his face or burned him with it or anything. It's just, yeah. It's just fallen through his claw-like grip, and he's sad. <laughs> it could have been so much better. Yeah. Well... I will ask you to remember the phrase, where there's life, there's hope. That does come up in the script, and it does come up in the book, and it's a Chekhov's gun, so remember it, as we always do. 
Let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we get a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here, you lucky people. And none of you did it. We had nobody in our Goodreads group actually review this one. We can't blame them. They didn't, they we didn't really want can't. to. No, we really didn't. We were only in it for the money and the power, like Hickory okay. Exactly, and that's only half right. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.41, which is kind of high, and in fact, some of the reviews are kind of high. Mel gives it four stars and says, Doctor Who and the Monster Peladon was a bit disappointing. I think part of the problem with this book was that it was a longer serial, six parts, yet the novel was the same length as the shorter ones. So instead of adding anything to the story, it felt like it was rushing through as quickly as possible. I just rewatched The Curse of Paladon, which I think is definitely one of my favorite episodes. Oh dear. I love Troughton's son, all young, and Joe's simply brilliant. I love how the enemy is superstition and the evil ice warriors have actually turned over leaf, and for once a Doctor Who villain becomes one of the good guys. However, in Monster, there is none of that. The superstitious miners are the heroes. The ice warriors are once again bad, though they're a splinter group. Sarah seems to spend most of her time complaining about being there. Yes, she does. But does have a few moments of brilliance. I'm still looking forward to watching the episode of Alvar and seeing how it compares. I think for once the show might be better. Yeah, I think she's in for a rude disappointment. And she rated it four stars? Yeah, she did. <sighs> okay. Yeah. Daniel Kukwa also gives it four stars, but he says a story that gets a lot of stick for being a less than satisfying sequel, but it's one of the first target novelizations I ever read, and Terrence Dix painted a wonderful picture of the planet of Peladon and its problems. Try saying that five times fast. Uncle Terry even provides a recap of the previous story, helpful to readers like me, who weren't even aware at the time that there had been a previous Peladon story, unlike the rest of us who wish we could forget it. In an era when Dick's novelizations were thin, bare-bones, monthly transcripts, the monster Peladon manages to rise above the threadbare production line quality of the time. Mm. All right. And finally, Christian Petrie, sorry. And finally, Christian Petrie gives it three stars and says, Sometimes you come across a Doctor Who story and you wonder why does the Doctor even bother helping the people in it? (laughs) (laughs) This book does cover political issues of the day, and some could say today in a setting to bring them to people's attention. The upper class using the working class to maintain their lifestyle, the working class becoming so upset they want to overthrow the government, then sprinkling in some old-fashioned ideas about a woman's role in society, it comes across too heavy-handed and one-sided. Everyone is for one side or another. So you sometimes wonder why the Doctor wants to save them if they can't compromise. Of course, all the issues are swept under the rug once a common enemy arises. Then remove the main people causing the issues, and all is saved in the end. The significance of the story is the last Ice Warrior and Paladon story seen on screen. Another by-the-numbers book by Tansdix brings nothing extra. An easily passed over story. So, Dalton, I'm going to start with you. Out of five stars, what would you give this? I think I'm going to have to agree with Christian and go with three stars, although that does seem a little high. But, yeah, it's there's nothing absolutely horrible about the book. 
But there's also nothing that glows, that shines, that's absolutely wonderful. It's it's very much just kind of the middle of the road retelling. You know, I haven't seen the televised version, but yeah, there's, there's nothing super special about it. So yeah, just three stars for me. Okay, Allison? I like that last review about the problems being swept under the rug at the end. I guess that the ending of the story had already left my mind. Uh, they don't have to solve their problems. So the, the, the interesting problems that are brought up and not very well explored are then evaporated by the fact that, oh, the war is over, the conspiracy failed, so we don't really have any problems now. Man, I just kind of bummed out by this story. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm going to go 1.5. <laughs> it wasn't terrible. It wasn't great. I've given high 1.5 before, so there wasn't a bad thing about it. It's just... It's la is the next Pertwee story our last one? It mm -hmm. is. I just feel like we're slouching out of Pertwee, and that makes me sad, I guess. Mm. Well, with any luck, the next book will make you feel slightly better about that, because it is an earlier Terrence Dix novelization and closer to the time that the story aired, so it's going to be a little better than this, that's for sure. But that's my opinion. As for my opinion... As usual, I'm probably going to give it between the two of you, like a 2.5. Certainly higher than Ghosts of Endspace was, mainly because this at least it actually is a Doctor Who story, whereas Ghosts of Endspace isn't. Mm -hmm. That being said, it's such a Doctor Who story because it's one we've seen before. It's essentially Curse of Peladon, which we didn't much care for to begin with. And we're reading it again, and this time without the added romantic interest of King Peladon and Joe, which is the only thing I can remember from that previous one. And, of course, the director telling them all to scream, holy fucking cow, when they saw Agador come into the throne room. But apart from that... Yeah, there's not much here. The only thing that really moved me at all was the line, he always hated goodbyes. Because yeah. in a story that's coming just before Pertwee's last story, you can tell that Terrence Dix has put that in. Because if on the barest chance someone is reading these in story order like we are, that line's going to resonate. As will where there's life, there's hope. Apart from that, there's not much that resonates. This is, as you said, Dalton, there's nothing here that really shines. It's just retread. And yeah. Allison, as you said, this is not even green bean casserole. It's rewarmed green bean casserole thrown in with something else. So, yeah, kind of bland. Well, thank you, guys. Mm -hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time, especially this time. Luckily, we didn't take too, up too much of it. Next time, we finish our discussion of Pertwee's final season with Terrence Dick's novelization of Planet of the Spiders. Mm. In the meantime, if you like what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalic at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Our new theme by... Well, it's not our new theme anymore, and it's about to be our old theme. Our theme by Aaron S. is available on his YouTube channel at tinyurl.com forward slash Y32B8F55, along with many, many others. Give him a follow and a thumbs up. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy your travels, stay safe, 
And bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Yeah.